Acts is a, is a great book. And uh, sometimes it's confused with, uh, with the title, How Do We Understand the Book of Acts? Uh, it's sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles because we think about the things that the apostles did as they spread the gospel and as they went from town to town, as they made their way from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and they did lots of stuff. God was powerfully working through them. Sometimes it's called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because you read through the book of Acts and you find prominently um, uh, recorded uh, throughout the pages of Acts the Holy Spirit and things that happened under the power of the Holy Spirit. But I think the most accurate way of understanding the book of Acts is to understand it as the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. Acts is like an ongoing version of what it was like to walk with Jesus when he was here for those uh, three years of his ministry. And the book of Acts really centers around what Jesus continues to do in his church. And so it's entirely relevant for us today because there's no more apostles. And so if we think, well, there's no more apostles, then there's no more stuff like happens in the book of Acts, then we're in trouble. But you can read about what God's doing in China, what God's doing in South America, what God's doing in Africa, and you can read these exact same kinds of things taking place in the very world in which we live today. And it's because Jesus Christ is still alive and at work in this world. You see in the book of Acts that people are healed in the name of Jesus. That's the same way people are healed today around the world, in the name of Jesus. You find that people are saved by the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus. That's the same way people are saved today, by the power of Jesus. And so when you read the book of Acts, and when we look at the book of Acts, how I want us to understand it is that Jesus has just multiplied himself a billion fold now. Because Jesus was one man on the earth. And it was to our advantage that he went away, because when he went away, he sent his spirit to come live in all of us. And so we all have the spirit of Jesus in us now, and we all have the ability through that spirit to do the things that Jesus did. That's rather extraordinary. But that's what the book of Acts is about. It's about the ongoing acts and deeds of Jesus. When we come to Acts chapter 15, and I'm going to read it in a minute, Acts chapter 15 is, a, is at a critical juncture in the church's life. Because up to this point, um, Gentiles, and by that anybody who wasn't a Jew was called a Gentile. So up to this point, Gentiles were coming into the, into the Jewish faith, so to put it, in dribs and drabs. Um, you can see it in the Old Testament. Um, Rahab, for instance, was a Gentile that was incorporated in, into the Jewish people. One woman and her family that made her way and became a Jewish woman. You move a little bit farther and you find Ruth, who, who was a Moabite. And Ruth became uh, uh, clung to Naomi, her mother. And she says, your God will be my God. Her, your ways will be my ways. And so she came to Israel. She eventually married an Israelite. And she became incorporated into the people of God. And so ones or twos, 15 or 20 here, became part of the Jewish family. But when you get to the book of Acts, you begin to see something absolutely revolutionary taking place. Because now the promise that Jesus had made to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him is beginning to take place. And so now there's not just 15 Gentiles or 10 Gentiles or one coming to faith in Christ, this family. There are thousands coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And that became a huge problem in the church. Because the Jews thought they should all become Jews as well as Christians. They thought that the only way that they could be a truly, a true follower of Jesus Christ, the only way that you could know for sure that they were saved is if they became a Jew. We still have that issue today. We just don't want them to become Jews. We might say the only way you can really be saved is if you become a Baptist. 
or if you dress the way that we do, or if you follow the same guidelines that we do, then we can know you're truly saved. And so this was a a significant issue because it's a gospel issue. At stake is what is the gospel? What is the good news about salvation? Are we saved by grace alone, as we've sung a number of times tonight? Or are we saved by, by, by taking on traditions and practices as well as putting our faith in Jesus Christ? This is a really significant question. And so that's the issue that was at stake. And so we're going to read the, 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 the chapter up until verse 22 and then just come back and make some comments about it. And you can follow along, Acts 15, or you can just listen as, as I read the, the Word of God for us tonight. But some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and the, uh, to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them and among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and have troubled you with words, Unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Father, thank you for this time that we have now to look at this historical incident which is so important for us to learn from because it's an incident that has been repeated throughout the history of the church because the pureness of the gospel because the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is continually buffeted and attacked and so this text just gives us a little bit of an understanding about what it means to become a Christian what it means to be saved Would you give us clarity, Father, from this text? Would you give us understanding about what it means to be a child of God? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the issue at at stake, what's the issue at stake in, in, in chapter 15 and at this council? We'll come to it in a moment, but what we begin with is something of a, just an understanding of the power of words. We find the power of words just echoed in many places throughout this passage. The writer in Proverbs wrote this. He says, death and life are in the power of words. I think we understand that. You can go to somebody and you can rip a strip off of them and you can cut them down so that they lose all confidence, they lose all self-confidence, and they wither away before you. I've seen dads do that to their kids. I've seen mothers do that to their kids. On the other hand, you can come to an individual and by your words, by the gentleness and the carefulness and well-chosen words, you can build somebody up so that they feel your love, they feel your grace, they feel your mercy, they feel your encouragement. Death and life are in the power of words. It's even more important when we consider spiritual issues. Because by the words that we speak, we can either draw people towards a faith in Christ and a true faith in Christ, or we can add stuff to the gospel and draw people away from Christ. And so in a very real way, the doctrines that we preach and the words that we say to people in theological context can have the effect of either driving them away from Christ or driving them towards Christ. Truth and life and health are found in the right words. Lies, disaster, and death are found in the wrong words. What we find is that it says in verse 1 that certain men came down from Judea and went into uh, Antioch and were teaching the brothers in that particular church. And what you find if you, if you listen carefully in verse 24, that what was taking place is they weren't authorized by the church. That church hadn't sent them out and said, you need to go and correct this situation. You need to go correct this inerrant theology or this errant theology. You need to help them. They just went out on their own impulse, out of the own desire of their heart. And it says, if you notice in verse verse 24, that people were troubled by their words. And that their hearts were unsettled by their words. That word trouble means to disturb, it means to confuse, it means to make fearful, it means to agitate, it means to take away the security that you have in your head. You know what? when you've come to a conclusion and you think you know just what to do, and then somebody comes along and they say something entirely different, and you start thinking, oh shoot, what have I just done? Well, they were doing this in a theological context. And the book of Galatians is very closely connected with Acts chapter 15 here. And there's some of similar language that takes place in that book. But Paul uses the same word. He says, I am astonished 
that you are so quickly deserting uh, the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. They are, again, this group of people that have come down and they're causing distress in people's minds. A little later in Galatians, Paul says, I am trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. It is not a good thing to be known as a troubler of the people of God. Added to that, it says they were unsettling their hearts. Uh, that's a, a, a word which means to subvert. It's drawn from military language and it means to, to plunder or to dismantle a town. And so as these guys came into this church with their teaching, they were, they were, they were literally dismantling the beliefs that this church had been raised up on. They were, they were destroying it brick by brick, layer by layer, word by word, until there was nothing left of their faith. The stability of their hearts was being dismantled and their minds were being plundered by words. And what, in a nutshell, were their words? Well, look at verse 1. This is so critical, loved ones. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is huge. And then in verse 5, they reword it a different way, and they add even another layer to that. They say, but we believe that we are, or, or they say, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. But Peter and, or, or Barnabas and Paul say, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. In a nutshell, the the issue here was, are we saved through grace and grace alone? The issue is, do we even understand grace? Do you know that one of the, the key word in Christianity is grace? There is no more central a word, no more important a word than the word grace. Grace is fundamental to the Christian life. This one word grace contains within itself the whole of the New Testament teaching. All of the New Testament um, revolves around this concept and this idea and this word of grace. Grace is the sum and substance of New Testament faith and theology. We cannot make sense of the New Testament if we don't come to grips with the term grace. And grace is, for lack of better better way of putting it, this is how I've sort of summarized it. There's lots of ways we could summarize it. Grace is God's undeserved favor. His unmerited love. It's God's love for us in His free gift, entirely undeserved, depending only on His free will. By grace have you been saved through faith. And this not, is not of yourself, but it is a gift of God. We, we used a couple of words there. Grace is a free gift. Right away we're in trouble. Because we, we have been brought up to believe that if you receive anything for free, it must be suspect. There's got to be something wrong with something that is offered, offered for free. If it's given to us for free, it can't really have value. We fall into that trap sometimes here at the church. We might want to put on a seminar, and we think we've got um, great teachers and great resources, but experience has shown us that if you offer that seminar for free, very few people will come. But if you put a nominal fee of $10 or $15, people will come. 
Because all of a sudden they think, well, it's got to be worth something. They're asking me to pay 15 bucks. There must be value to it. Well, in a far more critical way, that's how we think about grace. We're troubled by the fact that God would give us a free gift. Secondly, I mentioned that this gift is undeserved and it's unmerited. Do you know that that goes against everything in our nature as human beings? Human beings are raised with this idea, this sort of innate understanding or knowledge that you get what you deserve. That you you receive something because you have earned it or stolen it. But but we we think that 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 there is nothing that 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 comes to us freely by grace. And so when we think about this, then we have to understand that grace is exotic to us. In other words, it doesn't come from within us, it comes from outside of us. And you know that I believe very clearly that if the Bible was never written, we would never have a concept of the word grace. Because grace is a characteristic of God. It is not a characteristic of mankind. And so the only way we understand or even have a grasp of grace is because God has revealed to us what grace is in the Scripture. Paul begins his letter to Galatians, as I've already quoted in a rather startling way. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. What Paul is saying here is something rather extraordinary. There is only one way to God. There is only one way of salvation. There is only one way in which a sinner can be made right before God, and that is the pathway of grace as Pastor Barry talked to us last Sunday. And, and that the gospel is about salvation through grace. Anything else is a different gospel, and in fact, it's not a gospel. Why? Because Paul then would say just a few verses later that it was a revelation from God. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Do you see what he's saying? Grace, the gospel of grace, is not something that man invented. There's not a bunch of theologians that sat around one day and said, there's a really neat concept of grace. Let's weave that into the scriptures. He says, no. He says, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it from another man, is the implication, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel through which we are saved was not man's idea. It was God's idea. And this is what was at stake in Jerusalem. And that is what we have to continually contend for as Christians and followers of Jesus Christ. So at this very critical juncture, when the gospel is beginning to spread to the ends of the earth, the gospel of grace is being threatened. Grace was at stake. And as we read through the Bible, we just find constant ways of which God, he says, he pours out his grace. Talks about the riches of his mercy and grace. Everything we receive, we receive as Christians is a free gift, unmerited, undeserved, given to us by a gracious God. We think about redemption. Redemption is our being called out of darkness into light. Redemption is our being redeemed from, from, from slavery into freedom. We had nothing to do with that. We, we contributed nothing to our redemption. That is solely the work of God through Christ Jesus in his life and death. 
We think about reconciliation to God. That is something that has only been enacted by God through Jesus Christ, who has reconciled us to the Father. We receive that fully by grace. Regeneration, another word that's found in the Bible, regeneration is simply um, new life. It's, it's those of us who are dead. And in fact, the Bible says every single human being who was ever born and ever will be born before Christ comes back is spiritually dead. There is no life in them. They have no spiritual response to God. The scripture says that again and again and again. And so if we are spiritually dead, how can we make any movement towards God? Can a dead man, if you go to a mortuary and you look at people that are lying in the mortuary, ready to be buried, and can you ask them to do anything for you? Can they respond to any questions that you ask them? No, they are dead. And in the very same way, we are dead spiritually. And it's only through the grace of God, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we come to life. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. But God who is rich in mercy. By grace you have been saved through faith. And so we have regeneration, election. Being, 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 being part of the family of God is something that in Ephesians 1, it says that before the foundation of the word world, God chose us in Christ Jesus according to his glorious grace. The only way we can explain how we are in the family of God is not by anything we have done. It's not by any work that we have done. It's not by any family inheritance that we receive. It is solely because God in his glorious grace has said that one is written down in the Lamb's book of life. It's of grace. Preservation in Christ. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the coming of Jesus Christ. The way that we are saved uh, eternally, the, the work that has begun in our life and is completed in our life is because God is at work. What do we sing when we sing Amazing Grace? "'Twas grace that's brought me safe thus far, and works will lead me home." "'Twas grace that's brought me safe thus far, and my service will lead me home." No. It's grace at the beginning. It's grace in the middle. And it's grace at the end. And any time we add anything to that, we have distorted the gospel and we have made it something that God never intended it to be. And this was what was at stake in the church at this time. These are only a few of the riches that we have of God's grace. And it's expressed, if you've been in the church any length of time, you've heard some of the hymns that we sing in the church. We don't sing a lot of them at Thirsty. That's all right. But you can get, you can get them on, on, on your iTunes. You can get them on records still. You can still hear some of the old tunes. But some of them are just so beautiful. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That is the, the hymn writer just being blown away By grace, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Or we have another one. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. This is the gospel of grace. We have no access to God because of our sins. Our sins have created a barrier between us and God, but because of the amazing work of Jesus Christ, We can stand a sinner condemned and clean. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's the response. 
to grace. It's not more sinning because, well, God's gracious. He forgave my sin, so I'll just keep on sinning because that magnifies God's grace. That's another error that we'll get to in the book of Acts. But what the songwriter is saying there, love so amazing, so divine, demands my all, my life, my soul. One more. I think we're singing it tonight. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. See, the the hymn writers understood the beauty of the doctrine of grace. It just staggered them. Our world is full of wonders. As you were probably coming here tonight, you just were able to witness some of the wonders of our world. And we see it in the nature all around us, in the mountains that are covered with snow still, in the trees that are so green right now, in the sky that is so blue, in the sun that is so warm. Some of you see the wonders that, that are, exist in this world because of personal accomplishments. They might be your own, or you might look at other people and you say, wow, those are amazing accomplishments. And they, they, just, they just kind of set you in awe. Sometimes we see the craftsmanship of an, of an individual. We say, I just have never seen a painting like that, or a carving like that, or a house like that, or a building like that, or a plane like that. It is just amazing the skill that has brought that into existence. Loved ones, all of those pale in comparison to the wonder of grace. The amazing wonder of God's grace. And so grace was at stake here. By the time they all made it to Jerusalem, Peter and Barnabas understood the critical nature of this issue. Is salvation through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, or is it through circumcision and keeping the law? Are you saved by obedience or are you saved to obedience? Are you saved by an external right or are you saved by an internal work? Are we saved by grace or are we saved by works? This is an important thing to understand. And we still have these issues in the church today. Somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ and we say, well, until we, you know, we can't really be sure you're saved until you've come to church for a month. And then we'll really know that you're saved. Or, you know, somebody comes to say faith in Christ and they're still smoking. And it might be three years down the road. And we say, oh, you know what? You really can't be sure that that person is saved until they give up smoking. Or, you know, we might say, you know, somebody's still drinking. And you know what? Drinking and salvation don't go hand in hand. So somebody accepted faith in Christ. But we really can't be sure until they've given up drinking. Or, you know, they're not really obeying because they're not reading the Bible and they're not praying. And I saw them do some stuff that they shouldn't do or go somewhere they shouldn't go. So until they start doing those things, I can't really be sure they're saved. Hogwash. That is how we distort the gospel. That is a gospel that is not found in scriptures. We are saved in nothing that we do now, um, during our salvation or after our salvation. We are saved entirely and solely by the grace of God through Christ Jesus. And we need to understand that as a church. I don't know what God may do in our church. Uh, you talk to Barbara Judd, and Barbara Judd is just on fire. She's just, she's just got such a vision for our community and for the kids in this community. And we talk sometimes, and we think, well, a lot of people in our community, they don't look like us. They don't smell like us. They don't dress like us. They don't talk like us. They don't live like us. And if all of a sudden we share the gospel with them and some of them come alive in Christ Jesus and they walk in the door and then we start saying, oh, you know what? 
I don't know if you're saved yet because you're still doing this or you're still dressing like this or you're still talking like this, then we've missed grace. And we will never become what God wants us in the community if we have grace plus, 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 plus. Loved ones, we have to come to grips with the purity of the gospel and what it means to be saved by grace. You and I contribute nothing to our salvation. We find that hard to accept because we are just born and raised and our whole human nature tells us, I've got to contribute. I've got to earn. I've got to deserve. Grace tells us you don't contribute nothing. You don't earn nothing. You don't deserve nothing. You are saved because of the grace of God. That was what was at stake in this particular issue. As we move through this passage, and uh, I realized this morning um, in the first service that uh, I was already a half hour into the message, and I, I had only got the first third or half of my message done. And I must have been talking under my breath because I, I must have said, oh, I don't know if I should keep going or what I should do. And somebody in the, in the audience in the first service says, just say amen, brother. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and so I have shortened the message. So if you're trying to fill notes and all that kind of stuff, you'll get that. We'll get, we'll get to it next week. But it's important that we, that we settle on some of these things. So we're at verse 2 of, of chapter 15, and it's when words are misused in the church. We've talked about words that bring the power of life and death in this group of men that came in and they were speaking and teaching certain things which were just wrong. And now we have when words are misused in the church. In verse 2, it says that as they came into the church, um, there was no small dissension and debate with them. I want you to know, loved ones, that I enjoy a good theological debate. It's like iron sharpens iron. There is room for theological debate. Churches, uh, theological debates are not new to a church. Theological debates are not rare in a church. And theological debates should not be avoided in a church. They are just part of what we do as we grow in our understanding and the knowledge of God and what he has done for us. And churches have disputes just as healthy marriages have disputes. And you wouldn't look at a marriage and, and find out that a husband and wife is fighting and say, oh, that's a little crummy marriage. Unless they didn't resolve it and they're still fighting like five months later. But you'd say, well, that's a healthy marriage. You know, they're just working life out. They're just figuring this stuff out. They're just working at two becoming one. Well, you know, that same stuff takes place in a church. There is just, there is just stuff that happens in a church. We're not always going to agree. We're not always going to get along. Sometimes there's rubs. That is healthy. That's okay. But what is not okay is when those, those disputes get out of a hand. And the word here, sharp dispute, is used to refer to rioting. Or it's used in another place in Acts to talk about a dissension that becomes violent. And just as in a marriage, when that becomes violent, or when words start being sharp and cutting and humiliating, and we start putting down our spouse, or we start being violent with our words and our actions, there is no place for that in a marriage. In the same way, there is no place for that in a church. And so, there was this sharp dispute that was taking place. It wasn't helpful behavior. They couldn't resolve it. And so they said to Paul and Barnabas, the church said to them, you need to go down to the higher-ups and you need to solve this problem. The way that we solve disputes in churches is we have structures. We have authorities. 
And at some point, we have to submit to those authorities and those structures. The same way we have authority and structure in the land. We have local um, uh, provincial courts. If you can't resolve it in the local provincial courts and you're not happy, you appeal to the Supreme Court of B.C. If you're not happy with what happens at the Supreme Court of B.C., you go to the Supreme Court of Canada. And you've got to be happy with whatever the Supreme Court of Canada says because that's the end of the line. In the same way, that's in the, in, in the home. You know, kids, they, if they can't solve it amongst themselves, they might go to the mom and dad. If mom and dad can't solve it amongst themselves, they go to the dad. And there's no higher authority in the home than the dad. We have the same kinds of a structure in a church. We, have, we just have the normal people that talk. And if you can't resolve it, you might go to your small group leader. If you can't resolve it at your small group leader, you go to the deacons. If you can't resolve it at the deacons, you go to the elders. If we can't resolve it amongst the elders, then we go to the fellowship office. There's structures in place. There's authority that is given by God that we submit to. So as we move down this, this, this passage, we come to an unexpected word. And I do want to say something about this. The unexpected word is the word church. This is something that's growing in, 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 in the book of Acts now as the, as, the, as the people of God are coming to faith in all different cities and communities. And in verse 3, you see it. So being sent on their way by the church. Well, that was the local church in Pisidian Antioch. And then you say in verse 4 that it says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. You see, what is happening is that in communities and in cities, there are local churches that are beginning to form. There are places now with which the believers in those towns are starting to associate. And, and we have loose structures of the church explained in the Bible. And it's a healthy and an important thing to be part of a local church. I am continually and, and strongly convinced that you cannot really be a healthy Christian and not be part of a local body of believers. You just can't do it. It might be okay in China where you'll be killed for your faith, but even there they look for ways to meet in forests, in basements. They use secret passwords so that they can gather together because they understand that there's an organic necessity of being together as the people of God, that you are part of a family, that you are part of a body, that you are part of a building. And so we see that growing in the book of Acts, that as people come to faith in Christ, they begin to create local churches in local communities. We need to understand the value of the local church. And I'm so thankful, even on a beautiful day like this with an important hockey game starting in a few minutes, that you find it important to be together with the family of God. That is encouraging. That is biblical. That is God working in your heart. You might not want to be here. You might have been dragged here, but something tells you, I've got to be here. That's what's happening in the book of Acts. And then we end on this note. Encouraging words. And we find this as, as um, Paul and Barnabas are making their way from uh, this church to Jerusalem. As they go, they are sharing testimonies of what God is doing. I love this. You know, you, you, if you want to see the testimonies, you just need to read Acts 13 and 14. Or they might have talked about what happened in Acts chapter 10, 11, and the vision that Peter had, and the vision that Cornelius had, and the way that God brought them together. And Cornelius thought he was a God follower, but Peter came along and he explained to him what it actually meant to be saved. And Cornelius and his whole family embraced faith, and there was a great work of God that took place there. Or they came to a certain island, and as they were on that island, they were witnessing and sharing about God. And 
and there was this proconsul. He was a leader, and he had this servant, and the servant was a magician, and he didn't want anything to do with God, and he was pestering them, and he was trying to block the gospel. And so Paul called him an evil worker. He called him a devil, and he says, you're not going to be able to see for a period of time. And he went blind, and that just blew the mind of the proconsul. And he says, I want to know more of this God. And he came to faith in God. And so they had story after story after story of how these Gentiles were coming to faith, not because of anything they had done, not because they became circumcised, not because they followed the law of Moses, but simply because the grace of God touched their heart. And they believed the gospel and they were saved. What amazes me in this too is that you read um, in verse 3 and it says, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. Brought great joy to all the brothers. You know, loved ones, there is nothing that should bring us greater joy than to see somebody come into the family of God. It says that in in the book of Acts that the angels rejoice over the salvation of one sinner. When the disciples came back from a ministry mission and they were just blown away the fact that the devils were responding to them, that people were being healed and that they were doing amazing miracles, Jesus says to them, don't be happy about that. Rejoice because your name is written down in heaven. And yet we see these Jewish people were all bummed out. They had no joy. As they looked at these people coming to faith in Christ, they can't really be Christians. They haven't been circumcised. They can't really be Christians because they haven't yet followed the law of Moses. And we say they can't really be Christians because they're not wearing a suit or they're still swearing or they're still smoking. Loved ones, don't lose sight of grace. And when somebody comes to have their heart open and have their sins forgiven and be delivered from wrath to freedom, from darkness to life, light from death to life, we ought to rejoice and have great joy and say, wow, God is at work saving people. That ought to be our response to a work of grace. Great joy. And as we come to the table tonight, this table of remembrance, I said a little bit earlier that we we thumb our noses, it seems, at stuff that is free. But you know, there is nothing free. I mentioned that we might put on a seminar and we might bring in a speaker and we might set up tables. You know what? There's a lot of work that goes into that. Wages have been paid to make sure the room is clean. Wages have been paid to make sure the tables have been set up. The the seminar speaker has got education. He's gone to school and he's paid a lot of money for his schooling. Bills have been paid so that we have lights and electricity. The bathrooms have been cleaned. So that seminar might be free to you, but it has come at a great expense to the church or the organization that put that on. In the same way, don't fool yourself. And think that grace is free. It is a free gift to you. But it cost our Father dearly. It cost our Savior his life. And as we gather around this table, what we recall together is that Jesus Christ paid a a price that we could never pay. Jesus Christ paid a debt that we could never afford to pay. That Jesus Christ lived a life that we could never live. That Jesus Christ offered through his body and by shedding his blood the perfect, acceptable sacrifice to the Father. And as Scripture says, by his stripes we are healed. And so we receive it as a free gift from the Father. But it cost him ever so dearly in order to make that gift available to us.
So as we gather around this table tonight, we practice open communion here at this church. And if you've received grace, if you know what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're walking in a good relationship with God and good relationships with others, doesn't mean you're perfect, but you're walking with God. This table is an opportunity for you to remember grace. This table is an opportunity for you to remember that you have done nothing for your salvation. This table is an opportunity for you to remember that you can do nothing to add to your salvation. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say, I've done my part. Did he? He said, it is finished. The work of salvation was complete on the cross. And so we, that's why we come to this table with thankfulness. Because we're thankful that God has done it all. Because I know that by the time I go to sleep tonight, I will have sinned again. There's not any amount of good works that will ever be able to cover up for that sin that I've done. And so I come back to the grace of God. And I say, thank you, Father, for forgiving me completely, fully, and eternally in Jesus Christ.